Well, before we look into God's word together, let us speak with him again. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can come here in your name this morning and worship you. And we thank you that one of the highlights of our worship is not when we speak to you in prayer or in song, but when you speak to us through your word. Lord, we pray that we may listen as we speak, as you speak this morning, as you proclaim your truths to us. We pray that we may take these in and apply them in our lives so that we can be more like your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I do not enjoy when someone watches what I do, when someone's looking over my shoulder watching what I'm doing, and particularly when they're judging my actions. If someone is there looking over your shoulder and judging what you're doing, it's not the most pleasant thing in the world. And this can happen in many stages of your life at different times. Uh, You have teachers watching over you. And one of the most uh, nerve-wracking experiences, I think, when I've had someone watching what I'm doing is when I took my driving test to get your licence in Australia, of course. We have to undergo these tests Uh, It is not as though we can uh, bribe the people at the RTA and get a licence, as in some country you may be able to do. Uh, In Australia, they're very strict, and you have to uh, get a lot of training, firstly, from your parents or from a driving instructor, and then, of course, you have to take the driving test itself. And it is indeed nerve-wracking. You're sitting there, you're driving, and you've got someone there in the passenger seat, probably with their hand on the handbrake um, next to you, or a little nervous at least, and they're judging everything that you do. Every time you turn a corner, every time uh, you make any sort of movement on that gas pedal and how fast you're going to go, they're there watching you and judging your actions and then, of course, will give a verdict on your actions as to whether you've done the right thing or whether you've done the wrong thing and whether you can have a licence or you can't have a licence. We come across judges at different points in our life, people who will judge us in official capacity or in an unofficial capacity. People love to judge one another. And this morning, I want us to consider the fact that there is a judge. There is indeed a judge, the judge of the world. And that's told to us in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 4. If you've got a black church Bible, I encourage you to have it open as we look at verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 4, which is found on page 1203, 1203 of the black church Bibles. In verse 5 we read, But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is someone who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is a person who is a judge. And that's my first main point this morning. There is a judge. There is a judge. What do judges do? Well, the text actually tells us what judges do. Verse 5, it says, But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Judges receive accounts. And this Greek word that's translated account here is often used in the New Testament for accountability to human authorities, that you have to give account to an employer or you have to give an account to a government official. And here it's used that we have to give an account, we have to give accountability to a judge, a judge who is ready to judge the living and the dead. But what are we accountable to a judge for? What does it mean to give an account? Does it mean you give over your tax records? What is an account? Well, it means that the judge 
looks at your actions and calls you to account for those actions. A judge looks at your actions and says whether they are legal actions or illegal actions. If you get hauled up before a court, they will ask you to account for actions that you have supposedly committed that someone may be accusing you of, which you may have done or you may not have done, and then they will look at those actions and they will say whether they did happen or didn't happen, and then they may look at actions and say, was this a legal act according to the law or was it an illegal act? And Peter is telling us here that there is a judge who, like human courts, calls people to account. There is a judge who calls us to account as well and looks at our actions and judges them as legal or illegal. Now, who is that judge? Who is the one that Peter is speaking about here when he says, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead? Is he referring to Caesar? That Caesar will receive an account from People. Well, Caesar did receive accounts from people, but no, Peter is here speaking about God. The Bible tells us again and again that a day is coming when witnesses will be called to give an account about people, that people, uh, that God will receive accounts about what people have done, and they will be either judged righteous or unrighteous. And we see many passages in Scripture teach this. In Romans chapter 2, for example, Romans chapter 2, verse 13, we read, For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight. God looks at us and considers whether we are righteous or not. But it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. If you want to be righteous, you're meant to obey the law. And then it says, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. On a day, God will call people to account for the way that they lived. Even if they do not know the laws of God, they have laws written on their hearts, Paul says. And those laws that are written on their hearts will testify against them. Their conscience will testify whether they have done the right thing or the wrong thing, that they knew what the right thing was to do. When they murdered someone, their conscience told them that that was wrong. And that conscience will be there as a witness against them. And when will that happen? Paul finishes with, this will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. There is a judgment day and that judge is indeed God. And what are some unrighteous actions? What are those illegal actions that God will judge as unrighteous? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 4, we've actually seen quite a few of these. We've been slowly working through 1 Peter chapter 4, and back in verse 3, there's a whole list of actions that God considers unrighteous. Back in verse 3, what do we read? For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. And then there's a little list for us, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. There's a whole list of things there that God considers unrighteous. And if you have committed any of those sins, which I'd be very hard-pressed to find anyone, I think, that hasn't committed those sins, then you will be called to give an account to God for those actions and will be condemned as unrighteous. And then in verse 4, there's another sin that is committed that God considers unrighteous. What does it say in verse 4? They, referring back to the pagans who live in those sins, they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. Last week we looked at that text in great detail about how 
non-Christians look at Christians, see the way they live, and instead of wanting to live that way as well, like the Christians, they instead heap abuse on Christians. They call them stupid. They call them different names. They say that what they're doing is actually wrong, like they use words like discrimination and intolerant. That is sinful in God's sight. And one day such people, verse 5 says, but they, those people who heap abuse on you, will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So there is a judge, is my first main point this morning. The question is, will the judgment actually take place? Maybe God isn't ready to judge. Is God ready to judge people? That brings me to my second main point this morning. There is a judge who is ready. In Australia, we're supposed to have a justice system, and we do have a judicial system here, but many unrighteous acts in this country go unpunished because the judicial system just isn't ready to handle the huge amount of illegal acts that are committed in this country, and people go unpunished. Often there's just not enough evidence that someone has committed an act or somebody no one really knows. I mean, just consider how many times people have uh, committed acts against the state when it comes to taxes. I mean, does the state have enough information to be able to pick up every time someone cheats on their taxes? No. Many, many acts against the state go completely under the radar because the state does not have enough evidence. It is not ready to judge everyone for every legal act. And sometimes there's just not a judge available. Our judicial system is often swamped with so many cases that uh, the, the case just doesn't come before the judge for a long time. And sometimes there's not the power to judge the person. They just don't have that power to do it and they can't punish the person according to the crime that they've committed. And sometimes in our country uh, the person... Uh, is not ready when the judge has been appointed. We may not have enough judges to go around at times, but when you do get a judge appointed, it just takes a long time before the trial is actually heard, and so the judgment is not made immediately, as it should be. But does God have the evidence? Is God ready to judge? Yes, he is indeed ready to judge. What do we read in verse 5? But they will have to give account to him who is ready The other way of translating that word is prepared. God is prepared. God is ready to judge. How do we know he's ready to judge? Does he have evidence to judge? Yes. God is indeed ready to judge because he has records of all your sins. It doesn't matter how secret your sin is, how much you've lusted just in your mind and it's never shown up in your life. God knows about it. And he has it all recorded. Uh, One of the ways the Bible talks about this is that there's books with all your sins listed. Revelation 20, verse 12 says, And I saw the dead, this is John seeing a vision, he saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. These are books like no judicial system in the world has. This judge, God, has the evidence against every crime you've committed against him. He has evidence for it. He is ready to judge. It's not as though he doesn't have records. He even has your own consciences, we saw in Romans 2, testifying against you. But maybe God doesn't have a judge available. 
you know, our judicial system's there and then they have to appoint a judge on behalf of the state to prosecute you. Maybe there's no judge available. But yes, God is ready to judge because he has appointed someone to judge. Who is God appointed to judge? The Son. We read in John chapter 5, in a couple of instances, John chapter 5, verse 22, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. You think that you're going to get off because there's no one around to judge your case. In some countries, that is the case. You've committed a crime and they just don't have the legal system there to call you to account. No, someone has been assigned to your case. Who is that? It's the Son. And further in John 5, he says it again in verse 26. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? That person that we just read about in Daniel chapter 7 who comes up to the Ancient of Days and is given authority. And John continues, uh, Jesus continues in John says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. There is a judge who has been assigned to your case, and one day you will hear his voice and you will get up and come out of your grave, and you will either be judged as one who lives because you have done good or you'll be judged to be, you'll be condemned because you have done evil. But does Jesus have power to judge? We often see our judges, yes, you might have a judge assigned to your case, he's got some evidence against you, but does he have the power to actually administer justice? Does he have the power to actually punish you for what you've done? Is that the case with God, that he doesn't have the power to actually, he might be able to condemn you, but then what happens then? Does he have the power to punish you for your sin? Well, we see in the scriptures that Jesus is ready to judge because he has power shown by his resurrection from the dead. In Romans 14, 9, it says, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. He has died, he has come back to life with power, to judge both the dead and the living. Why does the resurrection qualify Jesus? Well, it shows his great power. The problem with earthly judges is that they don't always have the power to be able to send someone to jail. They may know that someone's definitely committed the crime, but through technicalities, the person gets off. But Jesus has that power. How do we know he's got great power? It's because he came back to life. After paying for sin on the cross, he did not stay dead in the grave. He came back out of the grave. His body did not see decay. His body was not left to rot in the grave. He came back with great power and he is ready to judge with that power. You may say, oh, well, is Jesus ready to judge anytime soon? Is he coming to judge me soon? I mean, I consider my life, I'm almost 33 now and Jesus hasn't come to judge me yet. How do I know he's ever going to come? Well, Jesus is ready to judge immediately. He could come at any moment. The Bible tells us that, the, that Jesus could return at any time. We read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, For in just a little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. And in Matthew, we see that the way that Jesus will come will come like a thief in the night. We see in Matthew 24, 
verse uh, 42, it says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus is coming, and he'll come when he's ready. He's ready right now. He could come. He comes like a thief in the night. You think because he hasn't come yet, he's not going to come at all. He's not ready to come. And you'll somehow get off the hook for all the sin that you've committed in your life. Well, it's just like a thief. I've never had my home broken into at all. And so I could be misled into thinking, ah, it's never going to happen. I don't need to bother locking the door. It's just not going to happen. Well, when it comes to Jesus coming back, just because he hasn't come yet doesn't mean he won't come. He's ready to come, the scriptures tell us. Then you say, oh, how do I know that all those things in the scripture about Jesus coming to judge are actually true? How do I know the Bible's true in what it says, that there is a God that has handed all judgment over to a son who has great power, who is going to come at any time? He could come tonight. How do I know this is true? Well, the Bible actually says there's a proof test to whether Jesus is coming back to judge. Acts 17 verse 31 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice, this is God, has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, who's that? Jesus. He has given proof of this, proof that there is a judgment day coming, to all men by raising him from the dead. He has given proof to everyone that there is a judgment day coming and that a man is going to be the judge and that man is Jesus. And how do we know that's true? Because he raised Christ from the dead. This is just another example of how pivotal the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to Christianity. Everything hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not take place then Christianity falls. There is no judgment coming. We can't be certain that the judgment is going to take place. If you have doubts about whether there is a judgment coming, that there is one who has records of everything you've done in your life and will condemn you for the sins that you have committed, if you have doubts about that, what are you to do? Investigate the resurrection. Look at whether there is proof that the resurrection actually took place. That's what the Acts 17.31 says. He has given, you, given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And I encourage you, if you have doubts that Jesus is coming back, if you have doubts that there is a judge, if you have doubts that your sins will be called uh, to give an account to that judge, then look at the resurrection. That is proof that there is a God and that he does care about this world and he will call people to account. Look at the resurrection. If the resurrection took place, then something phenomenal took place in this world. Something that we just cannot explain unless there is a God who has interacted in this world. And then if you do consider that the resurrection has taken place, then see where that takes you. It takes you to trust that everything else explained in the scriptures. If the resurrection is true... If the scriptures are true when they account for the resurrection, then they must be true in everything that they say, including about a judgment day. Well, but you may say, okay, the resurrection 
does prove that there's a judgment. But you say, ah, but what about if I escape the judgment by not being alive when Jesus comes back? Yes, he's going to come like a thief in the night, but I might be able to escape the judgment by being dead. And that brings me to my third main point this morning. There is a judge who judges the living and the dead. What does it say in verse 5? But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. When Jesus comes back, yes, he's going to judge everybody who's alive on the planet. But he's also going to judge people who are dead. Some people in this world try to escape justice. How do they do it? They commit suicide. There are people who are in prison kept on suicide watch. Why? Because they're going to try and escape trial and the public humiliation and shame when they are condemned as guilty. People try to escape justice by suicide, by death. How did Hitler escape getting judged and condemned in this world? Suicide. Is that possible? Can you escape the judge of the world by suicide? In this world... We have this great problem of we cannot judge the dead. People have tried to in the past. With John Wycliffe, the great Bible translator, one of the uh, first translator of the Bible into English. What did they do? The Roman Catholics hated the fact that he had translated the Bible and he died of old age and, he, and they, they wanted to condemn him for what he had done. What did they do? They dug his body up. They burnt it and then they scattered it in the river. That's their judgment. They're trying to judge the dead. And there's actually an even um, there's an even stranger thing that the Roman Catholics did in the 800s. It's actually called the Cadaver Synod, where they tried to judge the dead. At a Roman synod, this is coming from the Encyclopedia Britannica, on the Cadaver Synod, it says that a Roman synod conducted by Pope Stephen VI in the 800s Formosus's political enemies had his corpse exhumed. Okay, so Formosus was a pope um, before and he had died and the people after him didn't like him. And so they had his corpse exhumed, so they'd taken it out of the grave, they propped it up on a throne and subjected him to a mock trial. So they had a trial with a corpse in the courthouse, during which a deacon answered for the corpse. So, of course, he couldn't make any replies when they would say, uh, what do you have to say for yourself? Well, someone, of course, had to answer for him because he's dead. He's there on a throne, but he's dead. And his election as Pope was declared invalid. His acts were quashed and his fingers of consecration were cut off. So the corpse is there and they um, punished him by cutting his fingers off. And then his corpse was then cast into a grave, but later they weren't happy with that and they threw it into the river. Now, that's an attempt to judge the dead. But it's just ridiculous. We sort of chuckle at that. I mean, can we judge the dead? No, we can't. But Jesus can. Jesus does not have the problem that the Roman Catholics had with one of their previous popes. He can judge the dead. In Hebrews 9.27, we learn that man is destined to die once and after that face judgment. When you die, you are still judged. And so if you're alive when judgment day comes along, you'll be judged for your sins. And if you're dead, you're judged too. You can't escape judgment by being dead. So this is quite a scary truth for us to consider, that there is a judge, that there's a judge who's ready, 
And that there's a judge who judges the living and the dead because that means there's no option for us. If we're alive, we're judged. If we're dead, we're judged. What are we to do? Because if we look at that list of sins, just that list of sins alone in verse 3, we see that we have committed acts against God. And if we just consider other laws in the Bible and we see how much we have sinned against God, then this strikes fear into us. And so my fourth main point this morning is there is a judge, so be ready yourself. Yes, it should scare us to consider how much we have sinned and that there is a judge who will call us to account for our actions. And so we should be ready for that judgment day. And what is the only way to be ready for that judgment day? Well, it's to accept the offer of freedom from the judge himself. The judge has offered us freedom from our sins, has offered to pay the punishment for our sins and has the power to do so. How is that? Through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Jesus offered himself to pay for our sins so that on judgment day the books would be opened and your transgressions against God have been washed in Jesus' blood and washed away. How do you prepare yourself for Judgment Day? You need to repent of your sin, acknowledge that you've sinned in the ways that are accounted in this, in this, in this book before us, in even just verse 3. You need to repent of the life of debauchery, lust, detestable idolatry that you participated in, and believe that Jesus Christ died for you, that he suffered for your sake on the cross, for your sins there. So that's what you need to do. If you have accounted that there is a resurrection and that there is a judge, you need to then repent and believe that Jesus Christ died for you. Now, is there any encouragement for us here in this text? Is there an encouragement for us? Because Peter here seems to be telling us things that are quite scary in verse 5, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, and that includes us because we've done what pagans choose to do in the past. But... If we trust in Jesus Christ, yes, we are cleansed. Is there any encouragement for us here in this text as well? Why has Peter spoken about judgment in this verse 5 here? Well, it's because there is a judge so we can be comforted. In verse, uh, That's my fifth main point this morning. There is a judge so be comforted. It's interesting where he's put this verse in. We've been looking at this passage for a couple of weeks now. And what has he been talking about? He's been talking about the suffering of Christians. Verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. He's saying, okay, you've got to get your attitude of Jesus on you as a humble attitude that you're willing to, be, to suffer because you are done with sin. And so then don't live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God because you've spent enough time sinning in the past. And he's talked about what pagans choose to do. And then in verse 4, which we looked at last week, we looked at how people abuse you for doing what is right. And then Peter comes along with a piece of encouragement for you. What's that encouragement? That people who abuse you will one day be judged for the abuse that they pour out on you. People of this world may haul you before judges and demand that you give an account of yourself for righteous actions, and they may punish you for the actions that you do. People condemn you. People judge you all the time. If they 
heap abuse on you? What are they doing? They're judging you and saying that your actions are stupid, your actions are wrong. And what are you to do at those times? You're to remember that they may have the word now, they may be able to speak now, but they will not have the last word. Who has the last word? It's the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. One day, those people who have abused you for righteousness, who have caused you to suffer, who have persecuted you for doing what is right, will have to give an account to one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is a comfort for us because it means that we don't have to take justice into our own hands. We don't have to be the ones who have the last word. We can suffer for righteousness knowing that we're handing it over to one who judges justly. Just like Jesus handed himself over to the one who judges justly. He was willing to suffer, to be reviled, to be abused, to be insulted. Because he knew there is a judge. And that is God and that God would give that just, judge, uh, judgment over to him. That there would be one who judges justly. And we have to do the same as well. We can't simply avenge ourselves on every wrong that anybody does us in this world. Because, of course, people wrong us all the time. We have to hand such judgment over to God, knowing that he is ready to judge the living and the dead. It's not as though we're handing it over to someone who's not ready, who's unable to judge. No, he is ready. He is indeed ready to judge the living and the dead. So this morning I want to ask you, have you been reconciled to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead? Have you been reconciled to him through repentance and faith? And if you have, when you are persecuted for repenting and believing, as some people will do to you, it's amazing how your family will abuse you just because you've repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. They think you're an idiot for doing such things. When you are persecuted, do you remember that there's a judge for such persecutors? Do you remember that you do not have to personally enforce justice? Rather, there is someone who is ready to judge them even now. That if Jesus comes back tonight, he will de- indeed make sure they give an account for what they've done. And do you remember that they will be judged whether alive or dead, that they can't escape his justice? Now, in our country, it may not be something that we have to remember that uh, that. Uh, clearly that um, we have to hold on to it that much. But in some countries where people are getting abused and insulted and persecuted heavily, this is a sliver of hope for them. This is a great hope for them because it means that no matter what their persecutors do to them and no matter what happens to their persecutors, that their persecutor may escape justice by suicide, by, by committing suicide so that they do not have to face for their crimes later on, and we've seen that happen with dictators again and again through history. They are oppressive to people, and then justice seems to be coming along, and they'll get caught for what they've done, and what happens? They escape that justice by death. We have to remember that there is one who judges the living and the dead, and we can take comfort in that, knowing that justice will be administered. Let us pray to our God now. Heavenly Father, we do indeed thank you that you are judge of the world and that you have handed judgment over to your Son, that he is indeed ready to judge and that he will judge the living and the dead. Lord, it is so sad that people would abuse us, would persecute us 
would cause us to suffer for righteousness. Lord, but we pray that at such times we may remember that Jesus Christ will make sure he has the last word. Lord, we pray that we may be comforted by that fact, that justice will be served. But Lord, we do also consider this morning that we will be called to give an account to you, the judge, as well. And we thank you that we know that we will be counted righteous in your eyes despite the sins that we have committed, despite even the abuse we may have heaped on Christians in the past. We thank you that that has been washed away through Jesus' blood. And we pray for our persecutors. We pray that they may not one day have to be punished for the abuse they've heaped on us, but instead, Lord, we pray that they may come to repentance themselves and they may believe that Jesus Christ died for them and their sins just as we have believed ourselves. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.